You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you struggle to find meaning in what you're reading? Do you feel like you're missing something that the author of Scripture intended for you to understand when you read the Bible? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret the Bible? I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Today, what we want to look at is these two pages in your Bible that separate the Hebrew Bible Old Testament from the New Testament. Now, in a future episode, we will address the history of this period, but I want to look at it more from the standpoint of the development of sources that become important for us to understand the New Testament. You see, those two pages represent about 400 to 450 years of history. And as I like to say, Dylan's taught us that the times, they are a changing. And the challenge that we have is to recognize not only that the history has evolved and happened to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. We've even gone from hearing about the Judeans in the Old Testament to by the time we come to the New Testament, speaking about Jews. But as all things happen within a movement of chronology, and as time moves forward, culture also evolves. So when we talk about the cultural window into the context of the world of the Bible, we need to understand that the culture from the period of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible to the New Testament has changed. And in another episode, we'll talk about historically what went on that affected that. But one of the things that emerges out of that period is collections and bodies of literature that become sources to help us understand the echo chamber in which the New Testament is speaking. To understand the theological developments, to understand the cultural conversations and the debates that have emerged over the scripture, it also provides us vocabulary through which we can understand the contextual world of the New Testament. Just to give you an example, when we open up the New Testament, all of a sudden we start hearing about groups like Pharisees, 
Sadducees, institutions like the synagogue, things that we do not find in the world of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, but there they are once we open up the pages of the New Testament. And the authors of the New Testament assume that we know what these groups believed, what the issues and the debates were between the various groups, and how the synagogue functioned. So in order for us to find familiarity in that world and to step into it and engage that cultural context is a background to understanding better the text of the New Testament, then we need to become comfortable, familiarize ourselves, and begin to look at and access this body of literature, or I should better say these bodies of literature that emerge in this period between the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament. So that's what we want to look at today. Our most important source for understanding the land of Israel, its history, its political institutions, its religious groups and parties, is a first century writer by the name of Josephus. You will sometimes hear him referred to as Josephus Flavius or Flavius Josephus. Why is he so important for our understanding of the world of the New Testament? Josephus' story is rather fascinating, and although he certainly takes certain licenses and liberalities in telling his autobiography, he does lead quite an interesting life. According to him, he was a Jerusalemite of a priestly line on his mother's side related to the royal priest kings of the Hasmoneans. He was sent early in his life with a delegation to Rome. And when the first Jewish revolt breaks out in the year 66, he is actually appointed and sent to the Galilee to organize the defenses and as a general of the Galilee. He is going to be captured at a site by the name of Yodfat during the first revolt and will be basically a prisoner of war for the rest of the war, although he will be released right before the siege of Jerusalem, of which he was an eyewitness. After the revolt, he's going to go to Rome, and from Rome, he's going to write four works. And why he's so important and fascinating is the fact that he writes to an audience that does not know Judaism firsthand, nor does it understand or know the land of Israel. So he has to provide them background as outsiders to understand what he's writing about. His four works, at least that have come down to us in order of composition, are what is called the Judean or the Jewish War. He publishes this in around the year 79 of the first century. This is actually the official imperial version of the revolt commissioned by 
the then emperor Vespasian and his sons Titus and Domitian. It explains the story of the first revolt and the buildup and lead up to that revolt. In the midst of telling his history, he's going to speak about the various Jewish religious parties and religious and political factions, as well as describing the origins of the messianic political ideology that ultimately materialized into the first Jewish revolt. He's going to talk about the Roman administration of the province of Judea under prefix like Pontius Pilate and procurators like Felix and Festus, all three of whom we meet and encounter in the New Testament. His second work is called The Jewish Antiquities, and this provides a history of the Jewish people beginning with Genesis and leading up to the First Revolt. Not only does this provide some parallel accounts of what he speaks about in his Jewish war, but also serves as a repository of Jewish interpretive traditions related to the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. His third work is Against Appian, in which he offers an apologetic for Judaism against anti-Jewish attacks that were written about in both Greek and Roman authors. You have to understand that as a result of the First Revolt, which comes to a conclusion in the year 73, there was anti-Jewish sentiment throughout the Roman Empire. And one of the things that Josephus is trying to do is counter these anti-Jewish attacks. His final work, called Life or Vita, is really a short autobiography that was probably originally appended to his Antiquities of the Jews, in which he tells us a brief autobiography of his early life, but the main purpose is for him to defend his actions as a leader of Jewish forces in the Galilee. He had come under attack by one of his contemporaries, a man by the name of Justice of Tiberius. Again, Josephus writes for an audience that does not know the land, does not know Judaism, and does not know Jewish religious institutions or ideas. His comprehensive writing allows for us as modern readers who also oftentimes are separated from a knowledge of the land and Judaism of the first century to engage that world, a world that, as I said previously, is oftentimes assumed by the writers of the New Testament. There's another body of literature that we possess that is written by a Jewish author who comes from Alexandria in Egypt. This figure is a man known as Philo of Alexandria. He writes during the first century. He is a contemporary of the ministry of Jesus and of the early Jesus movement. Unlike Josephus, though, he is not writing with intimate knowledge of the land of Israel, although he does know 
some things, but only as a Jew who maybe would make pilgrimage to the land of Israel and Jerusalem, not as someone who was an insider like Josephus. He writes extensively in Greek. At the same time, he oftentimes will apply the literary technique known as allegory to his writings and his interpretation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. He does have a couple of historical works that are important for understanding this rather tumultuous period in the 30s and 40s, both specifically within Alexandria and Egypt, but also within the larger Roman Empire, particularly during the reign of the Emperor Gaius Caligula. We then speak about two more collections, or you'll hear this language used, which the term is Apocrypha. Understand that when people speak about the Apocrypha, there's really two different classifications that make up the Apocrypha. First of all, the Apocrypha can refer to the books that are found in and appended to the Hebrew Bible Old Testament within Catholic Bibles. These books are not Catholic, but they are books that were written by Jews in this window of time between the close of the period of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. These books are not found in Protestant Bibles, but nevertheless, they were written in this period from roughly 517 BC to AD 70 in the first century. You will find books like Ben Sirah, Tobit, 1st and 2nd Maccabees included in this collection. Sometimes the collection called the Apocrypha also will refer to books that are found also in Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, what is called the Septuagint. And there also you find works like 3rd and 4th Maccabees and 1st Ezra. So understand that the term Apocrypha is referring to these works written by Jews in this window of time, 517 BC to AD 70, and they are providing some historical references, but a lot is more theological and reflecting on the developing theologies and ideas that are emerging within Judaism during this period. Another body of literature that you will sometimes hear scholars refer to is what is called the pseudepigrapha. Now, the name pseudepigrapha means literally the false writing, because oftentimes these books are ascribed to biblical figures like Enoch and Moses and Abraham. Again, they give us windows into the cultural and spiritual world of the New Testament. Of course, the epistle of Jude in the New Testament is going to quote from the book of Enoch. Again, these works of the pseudepigrapha are written 
by Jews living in this period of specifically the Hellenistic and Roman period. You find books like Enoch and Jubilees, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Sibylline Oracles, and Fourth Ezra. Many of these works were preserved actually in various Christian communities who preserved them written in Greek or Latin or Syriac or Ethiopic or Coptic or Armenian. With the discovery of the body of literature that we move to next, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of a sudden we found copies of many of these books in Hebrew and Aramaic, which were the original languages that they were written in. Without question, the most significant archaeological find of the 20th century is the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I have to tell you, when I lead groups to Israel and we go to see the Dead Sea Scrolls at the Israel Museum in the Shrine of the Book, I have to prepare people up front and say, listen, you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard how important they are. But let's be really honest, they're not very sexy to look at. And part of that is because they're not illuminated manuscripts. Many of the scrolls are very fragmentary, some only being fragments the size of postage stamps. But what makes them so significant? What makes them so important? The library found among the Dead Sea Scrolls divides into three classifications. First, we find biblical scrolls. By biblical, I mean scrolls related to the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. Every book of the Hebrew Bible has been found among the Dead Sea Scroll Library except the Book of Esther. And many of the books have multiple copies. The most copied book is the Book of Psalms. The second most copied book is the book of Deuteronomy, and the third most copied is the book of Isaiah with 22 copies of the book of Isaiah. Now, notice that interestingly enough, these three works reflect the threefold division of the Hebrew canon, which is the law, the book of Deuteronomy, the prophets, Isaiah, and the writings, Psalms. Furthermore, these three books of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, are the most quoted in the New Testament as well. Now, what's significant about these biblical scrolls is they push our knowledge of the biblical text, the Hebrew biblical text, back over a thousand years to what we previously had. And what we see is that while there seems to have been more or less a general agreement about what books are being considered authoritative for the Jewish community of faith, although there's still some fluctuation in this period, that we note, for example, the absence of Esther, as I said. Very likely, that's because Esther, in Hebrew, never mentions the name of God. The issue doesn't seem to be because Esther was a woman, because you do find the book of Ruth. At the same time, even in the first cave that was discovered yielding Dead Sea Scrolls, there were two copies of the book of Isaiah. 
One of them is what is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. The thing that's interesting about the language of this scroll, however, is that a scribe writing in the late second or early first century BC did not copy directly the language of the prophet Isaiah from the eighth century BC, because of course, language changes over time too. So what he did is he provided an updated contemporary version of the language of Isaiah, reflecting the speech pattern and idiom of his day. At the same time, the second copy of the book of Isaiah found in cave one reflects the language of the 8th century BC. Also of interest are fragments of the book of Jeremiah. Now, scholars before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls recognized that the Hebrew version of the book of Jeremiah was several chapters longer than the Greek version that is found in the Septuagint. And the assumption was is that the translator of the Septuagint had a faulty copy of the book of Jeremiah, or maybe he just had some bad pizza that day and just skipped over a few chapters. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fourth cave that was found around the site of Qumran, they actually found two copies of Jeremiah. One reflects the chapters in order that you find in the Hebrew version, what was called and what is called by scholars the Masoretic text. And the other reflects what we find in the Septuagint. So this first body of literature discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls is very important for helping us to understand the history and the development not only of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament manuscripts and the development of and the ordering of these books. The second category discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're just going to call Jewish literature that is non-sectarian. Now, within this body of literature are works that were previously known, like Ben Sirah, Tobit, Enoch, Jubilees. But there were also works that were discovered that had not previously been known to scholars like the Genesis Apocryphon, the Testament of Levi, or Aramaic Levi, I should say, rather. And so this body of scrolls, manuscripts, provides us, again, theological, spiritual, cultural texts that provide windows into that spiritual and cultural world of the New Testament. In ancient Judaism. And then the third classification are sectarian texts. Most scholars are in agreement that the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as at least those that were discovered around the, the archaeological site of Qumran on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, belong to a sect that we hear about in Josephus and Philo and even in classical authors like Pliny called the Essenes. And this community was a sect that had removed itself to the desert to prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, they quote in one of their documents, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, these sectarian scrolls 
provide a window into this community. We see the very strict, stringent adherence to biblical law. This group, in fact, considers the Pharisees, they call them the seekers of smooth things. They see them as much too lenient in issues of religious and purity law. They view themselves as the sons of light and everybody else as the sons of darkness. And these sectarian sources provide valuable insights, not only into this sect, but into their debates and engagement with the world around them, including other Jewish communities. Interestingly enough, we actually find certain sectarian language in these sectarian scrolls that penetrate into the New Testament in the writings of Paul, the author of the Epistle of Hebrews, and the writings of John. And then finally, when we talk about our sources, literary sources, that provide background for us to understand culturally and spiritually the world, the contextual world of the New Testament, we have to speak about the body of rabbinic literature. Now, some scholars will note that rabbinic literature is written down after the period of the New Testament, so they immediately call into question its value for reading and understanding the New Testament. I don't agree with the blanket rejection of rabbinic literature as a source for understanding the world of the New Testament, the contextual world of the New Testament. But at the same time, I do agree that those sources have to be addressed critically. But within those sources, we find things pertaining to Jewish religious law, purity law, penal law. We find interpretations of biblical passages. One of the things that we find in rabbinic literature that we do not find in any Jewish sources outside of the Gospels are story parables. This literature that we've just surveyed provides us windows, linguistic, cultural, historical, theological, interpretive into the world of the New Testament. Now, obviously, these sources have value beyond just understanding the world of the New Testament. But for most of our listeners here, there's a definite interest in helping me to understand the world of the New Testament better. And one of the things that we have to do as readers of the New Testament text is to make ourselves available and to help ourselves to understand the historical, spatial, cultural, and spiritual contexts of the world of the New Testament to help us gain understanding and provide windows into the world of the New Testament. You've been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast. I'm Mark Turnage. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. I want to talk to you about Windows into the Bible University. 
Windows into the Bible University is reinventing biblical education. We are providing a full curriculum to take you from the beginning phase of understanding the biblical text and its context, all the way through helping you to grow in your confidence and ability to interpret the Bible and understand it within the context of scripture. By understanding the biblical text within the context of its world, you will learn to read the Bible with understanding. Check out Windows into the Bible University at WITBUniversity.com. That's Windows into the Bible University, reinventing biblical education. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.